ploughing, it then continued, um, and the, the green fields turned to, to brown. And by 3.30, it was, was finished for the day. They'd ploughed 11 fields successfully. However, the kink in the tail of this story is that nothing would be planted on those ploughed fields. The farmers would be too scared, as happened in the past, that the settlers would come down and uproot the crop, probably in olive, olive tree saplings, which had been planted there. That wasn't just a, a, um, an imagined fear, that is what had happened before. And indeed, on two other occasions, we saw where exactly that had happened, where settlers had come down and uprooted the crops. At this location too, the farmers showed us the trunks of mature 12-year-old olive trees where settlers had um, drilled into the trunk of the olive and, and poisoned it, and it had, had withered. So they didn't dare plant in these ploughed fields. Why then plough at all? Because Israel has a law which allows it to confiscate land, any land, any fields which are not cultivated at all. And by ploughing the fields, the Palestinian farmers keep that historic claim to their own land, hoping, praying that peace will come one day. Otherwise, if they stop doing that, Israel could claim the fields as state property. Hello everyone. The clip you've just heard is from a presentation given by Phil Crane, who's the guest on today's podcast. I recorded the presentation several years ago after Phil had returned from working doing peace monitoring in the West Bank and was giving a whole series of these talks, talks on the injustices he'd witnessed there. At the time, I was really struck by Phil's ability to maintain a calm and peaceful demeanour, both in the situations out in the Middle East themselves and also upon receiving hostile comments from crowds who whilst they hadn't been there and seen what he'd seen, had very, very strong opinions on the rights and wrongs of the situation. So that always stuck with me, and I wanted to interview Phil and go beneath the narrative and really explore what it was like for him on the inside, on a mental and emotional, spiritual level, to engage with their hostility, both here and there. So that's what we get into in this interview. However, I asked Phil to start off by recalling a really pivotal and influential moment in his earlier life when he was working as an accountant in Africa. I think when I was back in my early 20s, I um, worked for a firm of uh, accountants and they sent me for a few weeks to Khartoum, the Sudanese capital, my first time outside Europe. and. All of a sudden I was uh, assaulted with, with my senses, a different thing, different smells in the souk, very different language to um, anything I'd, I'd been used to. Um, but we were insulated from a lot of that because we stayed at the Hilton Hotel in Khartoum, uh, a very luxurious, comfortable place um, near the confluence of the, the, the blue and the white Niles coming together. And we, we stayed at the uh, this wonderful hotel and I can remember having a kind of an epiphany out there, um, totally unexpected, and I was looking out one day from my balcony in the eighth floor of the Hilton in Khartoum and I could look down into the hotel grounds and I could see the 
the trappings of any international hotel. I suppose I could see the, the pool with the lounges. I could see the, um, uh, the tennis courts on grass, watered, sprinklers. Um, and I, I, I suppose all this was, was um, the trappings of, the, uh, of a, a Western luxurious lifestyle, including me. I was on the inside. And, but from my vantage point, I could see beyond the square perimeter of the hotel complex. And I could see the, the Nile shimmering away in the distance, but I could also see just immediately outside the, the hotel wall, which was maybe three or four meters high, um, barbed wire and shards of glass on the top, quite an ugly thing. But I could see just beyond this, uh, a movement which caught my eye and it was, when I looked closer, it was a goat herd. A guy who was surrounded by a small flock of goats and the goats were trying to pour their way um, up the uh, bit of forage. It was semi-scrub, almost um, desert-like conditions, um, but a few um, acacia trees were growing there. I can see it clearly now. And the goats were trying to get a bit of forage from the lower branches of these trees. And the guy himself, himself was sitting under one of these um, acacia bushes um, in a cardboard box and, and seeking to eke out an existence, sheltering from the afternoon sun. Um, and he was about 10 meters away from one of the guys who was playing tennis on a watered court. Uh, I could see them both from my point of view, they couldn't see each other. Mm -hmm. And um, I never took a photograph of this, mm -hmm. but the photo yeah. remains in here. And it struck me just the, the polarization of those two opposites within one field of vision. And I remember thinking quite clearly, this is not a good way to, to run a planet um, with such discrepancies of wealth and poverty. Um, almost cheek by jowl in this instance, mm. but you rarely see them so close together and in one frame. And that, uh, say that was my first trip outside Europe, and I, I, I felt after this something is not right. And that was certainly had um, a formative experience. And, you know, when I follow my, my journey, my timeline on from that, um, I, I think it, it, probably a couple of years later, um, I, I, I left that, um, that firm of accountants and I went overseas to do um, voluntary service overseas um, in Pakistan for, okay. for a couple of years. But that particular um, moment in time, you know, and I'm sure there was a background that, that, that made that come forward, yeah. but it, 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 it had a profound effect on me. But the obvious comparison that comes up for me is the story of the Buddha, right, who is literally he's in a palace and he's been kept in the palace his whole life, never seen the outside world. His father, the king, is insulated from, from it. And then he, he sneaks outside and he sees poverty, sickness and death, right? And realise, oh, the world is not the way I have always believed it was. And I think it's an experience Europeans have sometimes, where Europe is a kind of palace, parts yeah. of it, okay? And then we go outside when we're in our early 20s, and although we've seen it on TV, to be confronted by it, Yes. And the world's never the same again. Yes, yes, yes. So did you have an underlying spiritual influence going on? Because I know you have been very involved in the Christian church in various ways. I believe you would identify as a Christian. 
That'd yes. be correct. Was that there then, or is that something that came in later? Um, yeah, I, I, I would and do identify as a, as a Christian. Um, I, um, I follow the teachings of Jesus, I try to, um, and uh, I accept um, some of the beliefs, and I will uh, do my best on a day-to-day -day basis to, as a, that as a, as, a, as a model for, for my life. Um, again, when you look at the timeline, it sometimes seems like three steps um, three steps forward and two steps backwards, or even <laughs> three steps backwards. Um, but it's been a journey that I've tried to commit to. There's been times of um, backsliding, um, where, um, which, 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 spiritually, I, I feel I've gone backwards. But yeah, more or less, I've um, I've always come back because I do believe that my God is a God of second chances and third chances and 33rd chances, um, who will never let me go. And I, I love, I think my favorite passage from the Bible is the, uh, the prodigal son, the return of the prodigal, particularly where, um, where the father is, sees the son returning from his wayward journey and um, rushes to him and welcomes him back. And um, that speaks powerfully to me. And has that always been something that's present in your life? right back when you were out in Africa or did you become more involved in Christianity as an adult? Um, yes, certainly I've, uh, I've tried different um, types of, of, of church but it was always, you know, in different localities. I've, I've spent um, time moving around and in different countries and indeed in different cities within the uh, British Isles um, and I've always um, this sort of brand of Christianity, if you like, has, has varied over the years. Um, but I've always, um, I've always, you know, made that, um, made that commitment, yeah, mm. to, um, to try to uh, follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Okay, so the, the plan is to talk about this particular trip to the Middle East. Mm. But fill us in on the midsection, if you were starting to say about going to Pakistan there, so what, what did the in-between part look like of your life as a 20-something-year-old man to okay. modern times? I think, um, well, I'll explain that. That was, um, that was one reason for um, the, the epiphany, as I call it. You know, that was one reason why that brought home to me the, um, the great inequalities in, um, in wealth and in power. Um, within the world and that made me feel well you know I, I can't change everything but I can do what I can um, and so that led me to after I qualified to volunteer to, to, to go to Pakistan as an accountant but of course when you're there you do 101 other things the accountancy took a, um, a back seat and I was involved in um, teaching English I was a hostel warden I was an ambulance driver a vegetable shopper and uh, that that gave me a a much broader view of um, of the country as a whole, and you know the one thing I witnessed there was um, the the hospitality that was given to me by rich and poor, Muslim and Christian alike. You know the the, the welcome they show as a stranger, and I think that 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 was something as well that that, that had a formative influence on me. The um, to the extent that uh, we in the West have, have 
largely lost the art of hospitality mm. compared mm. to out there. So that, that, that too had an effect, I think. Just, I'll just call in there because it, it really struck me. I went to Egypt when I was 20 and two things struck me. One, how much of an unconscious kind of image we take on of the Arab world without consciously mm. thinking about it. There's this negative drip feed that mm. comes through mm. the media mm. and being there immersed in this culture which i'm sure there's good and bad there i'm sure they have problems like we do mm. but it's very different in terms of the level of interaction on the streets the concepts of hospitality yes. engagement of strangers yes. and felt shocking to fly back into london yes. where that's greatly diminished then yes. so yes. that's another experience that comes through from yes. from going to these places but yeah 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 and and you know we in the west have so degraded um, not just hospitality, but relationship, you know, and we've just got a, a huge atomization of, of society now. Um, clubs and societies are almost a thing of the past for, for, for many people, and uh, that's a real challenge. But that's, that's probably another podcast. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah so, so um, I went to Pakistan, I came back, and I, I wanted to enter the world of... Um, uh, development, global development. So um, after um, another few years of um, uh, knocking around, I, I joined up with Christian Aid. They were looking for an accountant and I joined their, um, them in London in their headquarters. Um, after another few years, I left their finance department and went to, um, had a sideways movement to their uh, Horn of Africa desk, which um, allowed me to go out regularly um, for extended trips to um, Ethiopia, Sudan, Somalia, Kenya, a very um, poor region and one moreover that's been affected um, by conflict. And this was the 1990s and the noughties yeah. when there were civil war in, um, in, in Sudan, it was on, ongoing, there was the Ethiopian-Eritrean war, um, there was um, uh, just the ongoing lack of a central government in Somalia since 1990. All of these were, were quite challenging and, and, and eye-openers to me. Even though I wasn't living there, I was just doing extended trips from the UK. So as well, that, that, that had, um, that had a, um, yeah, an, an effect on me. And I think Christian Aid too was um, a great organisation to, to, to work for and, and still is. I was 23 years there altogether, and I think it taught me the value of um, speaking out against forms of injustice when I see it. So most of Christian Aid's work is done at the coal face through partners doing health or education or water work, for example. Um, but they reserve a little of their income for um, for campaigning to try to um, to change attitudes and government policies in the West towards that because they think that's that's one way they can get lasting change. So advocacy, lobbying, campaigning are very much part of, of Christian Aid's approach. And um, my latter years of Christian Aid were spent back here on the, the island um, where I was um, born and, and raised. And um, so it was, it was like coming home. And so the challenge there was to, to bring some of those wider world concerns um, back to a, um, a Manx, a Manx um, audience and to, um, to try to challenge um, the, um, uh, that audience to sometimes raise their sights above the horizon, sometimes 
and I think simply being an island sometimes gives us a very insular um, inward looking attitude amongst mm. some people and uh, and that was to try to to raise awareness of the of the wider world and and global perspectives so that's a very interesting theme about that you go out of these places you see a totally different world and then you come back and have to communicate with people who haven't seen it okay and it's something i'd like to explore but i think maybe we'll finish the narrative first and then okay. go into that so yeah. Yeah. ultimately around four or five years ago you went off into israel palestine as there's a special name for it it's an ecumenical i'll let you say the special name but it's yeah. um it's, it's a mouthful a, yes <laughs> it's, it's a peace observer right where, yes. where you would um oversee what was going on there i think i think the aim is that if there's an international observer there then it's less likely to people are more considerate of what they might do and not do with regard to mm -hmm. violence and aggravation mm -hmm. and well yeah for, for those obvious reasons so was the i know that the middle east is a place that is special to christians perhaps for good and bad reasons okay uh, was there anything that drew you there particularly what what was what formed the decision to go okay well um the decision to go was very much you know when when i think about it now a kind of um another uh, epiphany moment in a way um, I was still at Christian Aid here, but I took um, a few weeks um, off work, off the payroll, to walk the Camino oh, in northern right. Spain um, with a friend. And um, I, I didn't expect anything to, radical to come, but along this, um, this medieval pilgrimage route, after a few days, um, uh, we, I, I found myself dropping down through the gears um, emotionally and uh, just walking through nature day after day made me sort of step back and, and, and see the wood for the trees um, without really trying. And I could see that you know, I was more open to nature, to the uh, looking at the time instead of looking at my watch or looking at the sun in the sky looking at the length of his shadow i was more interested in the, the flora and the fauna that we were passing and uh, as i say just um gradually get, get, getting into this sort of, um, lifestyle just staying in hostels each night as we we plowed on westwards and um it it, it came to me quite suddenly that i could not go back to the status quo ante in my life which i came to see on the camino was far too busy i was juggling too many mm. balls in the air and that something had to give and moreover it was um it was my paid work at christian aid that 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 that, that needed to go um to to create more space and at the same time, I had been actually uh, finding out more about the uh, this program you mentioned, um, which is run by the Quakers in Britain and Ireland, uh, but under the World Council of Churches. And it's about human rights monitoring, as you say, in the um, Israel and the West Bank. And basically, you go out as a human rights monitor for three months. You stay in a different location, in an ordinary house, seven houses throughout the West Bank 
and I um, I was interested in this. Indeed, it was a Christian aid partner. The Quakers, as you know, have always been historically interested in issues of, of peace and justice. And I'd find out more and I'd, I'd put out feelers to explore whether this would be right for me. And the Camino confirmed that it, that it would. Um, and that it was only for three months, but it was a paid post for three months. And so um, I decided that uh, on the Camino that when I get back home, I would resign and would would go out in this. It 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 felt right. Um, it, it jumped up on the, off the screen for me when I first saw, saw this program, um, and uh, I would say that was God's spirit meeting meeting mine. You know, it was it was exciting and it was scary, and those are often <laughs> two two indications that this might be from God in my experience. <laughs> um, and so, first day back. I, I forced myself to ring my boss and, um, and hand in my notice. I knew that if I didn't do it on the first day, I wouldn't have the bottle to do it at all. And so at um, Christmas 2013, I, I finally stepped down from Christian Aid after 23 years. And in January, I, um, I went out to, to Jerusalem um, where, and I was posted um, in East Jerusalem for, for three months. Um, doing this human rights work, and when we unpack that, what does that mean? To some extent, it means a protective presence where by um, individuals who wear the, the, the vest of this recognized organization, the Ecumenical Accompaniment Program in Palestine and Israel, EAPPI, EAPI for short. Um, and by having independent neutral observers, in places where Israelis and Palestinians are cheek by jowl and particularly potential flashpoints like military checkpoint or like where um, Palestinian farmers are um, trying to plough their fields and under the gaze of Israeli settlers on the West Bank, places like that, we are posted or invited to be a, pre um, a presence there in order to deter violence from kicking off. It's very hard to, to, to prove that you've deterred something, but, but experience has shown, the program's been there 15 years now, that, that you know, we know if, if we're being watched, we might behave a bit better. Um, and so by having us there as an international presence, the hope would be that um, violence would, would, would not kick off in such tense circumstances. And so that's what we did. It was about um, advocacy too. Um, I don't hold any brief for either Israelis or Palestinians. I, I did work on a kibbutz when I was um, when I was in my early twenties, um, but I have seen, you know, and come to understand a more um, fuller situation there now, where Israel conquered the West Bank in 1967 in the Six Day War, and is still occupying it. And you now have half a million Israeli settlers living very uneasily amongst three million Palestinians in East Jerusalem and the West Bank. And so that situation, it, it's, it's going on and on, and it's, it's, it's a desperate one. And so although I don't have any natural bias towards Israel or Palestine, the situation in which I found myself was where one in which clearly one of those parties had all the power, all the control, all the wealth, and kept the other one under, under its thumb. And so we were looking out for, for human rights violations on, on, on either side.
but the the situation is that most of them are um, whether it's a house demolition or uprooting of olive tree saplings yeah. where the Palestinians were oppressed. Okay, well let's use that as a jumping off point for some of the more interesting questions maybe because I, I re-watched the presentation last night because um, just for the audience uh, I recorded Phil doing this presentation a few years ago and I'll link to it on YouTube below um, and I say YouTube particularly because it's worth watching because there are photographs um, throughout it which really bring it to life and within the first couple of minutes you're talking about the house demolition you went to which I think happened quite early on yes. in, in your time there um, now let's see if I get the narrative right. The Israelis had come along with bulldozers and demolished this man's house. His son was there and he'd had tear gas used on him. Mm. And the crime was building a house without a permit, but Israel severely restricts permits for Palestinians so they can't move. They build illegally and then the Israeli bulldozers come along. And I think the Palestinians are actually sent a bill for this, right? It's, it was, I'm going to say £10,000. Yeah, I think, yeah, yeah, 50,000 shekels, yeah, 10,000 right. pounds, yeah, you've got a good memory. So, now, within, I don't, I watched it last night. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so within two minutes, okay, of watching this, I can feel rage within me and thinking like, you know, if the Isle of Man was occupied by a foreign power, any foreign power where they were... Indians, Australians, mm, mm, mm. Jews, Muslims, whatever, and half the country was gone and I built a conservatory and they sent bulldozers along and so on, right? Or they not to knock my house down, you're given however long to grab whatever you can and get out and then mm. you're homeless. I mean, you know, my response to that would be one of, like, well, violence comes to mind, right? That one has a right to defend oneself mm -hmm. and ultimately to pick up a gun, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I don't think that's a, a radical response by any means mm -hmm. for normal human standards of behavior, that when our, our territory is invaded, um, we respond back, okay? Mm -hmm. That's what, you know, there's a doctrine of defensive warfare across the world. So I'm just observing that as that's my instant reaction mm -hmm. is one of like, it, it enrages me and I wonder when you're there in that situation, what did it bring up for you, feelings-wise, mm. to be stuck in? I would say that we were very well trained before we went by the Quakers. Um, as I say, who they've got a strong stream of pacifism mm. running through their, their, their veins. And we were trained that we were there primarily to witness and to record. And our weapons would be camera, in one pocket and the notebook in the other. We were there to witness and we were there to write it up and to get send it out on the internet to reports, both back to IAPI in, in London and Geneva and also uh, on, on our own blogs and newsletters. And they almost think that, that this advocacy value is more important than what we're doing there at the time than yeah. the program itself. So we are we are trained to be dispassionate observers. Now, of course, we we, we, we have we have feelings, and we you could see that as I said, one one side has all the power in this, and and the other doesn't. But it doesn't do anybody any good. In fact, I would argue it's counterproductive. If if 
if you show yourself as to be um, on, on one side, sure. you know, and, and you, you had to, to, to stay neutral and to say, okay, I would feel exactly the, the same feelings if the boot was on the other foot mm. and it was Palestinians who were oppressing Israelis. You, you have to you have well, to be well, absolutely yeah, yeah and, 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 and indeed you know we, we visited Sterot where the the um, the Israeli Jewish population has had to put up with incoming Hamas missiles for, for, for 10 years mm. from the Gaza Strip and those are just as much violations of, of, of human rights as as when the boots are on the other so foot was that you, you say you were trained but was it a, was it a conflict within you was there a case of a deep breath here well we, 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 we were trained but but um, Perhaps at a more deeper level as well. I, um, I, I'm, I'm not a person who's who's comfortable with with, with conflict. Um, I do um, try to follow um, the the teachings of Jesus, as I said. An important one for me is is turning the other cheek. Mm. So you know, when 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 someone steals your coat, you know, offer him another one. When someone um, uh, strikes your cheek, turn the other cheek, and yeah, you're right. That goes against the t the grain of of, of of the human instinct is to is to fight back mm. and to to engage and to. Um, but I think, and and that's not to say that um, injustice at all should be should be tolerated. But the ways of of dealing with it were to to record, to photograph, to monitor, and to witness, and to tell the world what's going on. So, for example, if you know, we had in, in, in the training we had um, by the Quakers, it was um, role play, which I dread, but this was it. And we were playing the part of, of ourselves, um, ecumenical accompaniers, and we were there um, accompanying the, the, the Palestinian farmers. And the settlers come down with guns and start firing and say, get, get, get off the land. Um, and, you know, we, we had to decide what to do. And of course, we would all, we, we, we jumped in um, and with our um, <laughs> our Westerners hat on to try to solve the problem. We would um, engage with the Israelis, try to persuade them that, mm. you know, um, this really isn't the decent thing to do. And they, they should go and leave the Palestinians alone. And that was the wrong answer. The, the, right. the, you know, the Palestinians have had to deal with this, we, we were told, you know, year in, year out. The correct answer was to withdraw, to go up the, the, the valley sides and to, to take notes, to photograph, to film and to record dispassionately what was going on, factually what was going on, to record as near as we could um, a truthful account of the incident and to send that out and to tell as much of the world as we can what was going on. Okay. Thank you for that. A couple of follow-ups, okay. So the, the first one being, looking at the photo of the two men sat there by their demolished house, okay, mm -hmm. in the rubble. Mm -hmm. And also you, you've, you've mentioned about the um, olive trees. So the other um, big thing you talk about in the presentation is the Palestinians going off to farm their land. They find the settlers put roadblocks in the way. Mm -hmm. They have to go around them. They plough the land and then they can't actually plant anything in it because the settlers will destroy it. Mm. But they have to plough the land or the Israeli government will consider it abandoned land and take it off them. Mm. Right. So uh, two incredible um, incidents of injustice. What sense did you get from the Palestinians? I've always wondered, looking at the photo, particularly of those two men on their house, was there a sense of apathy? Was there a sense of anger from them? Um, and particularly also because you talk about a, a Christian influence going on here and turn the other cheek, okay? Uh, now, there are Palestinian Christians, of course, but it's predominantly Muslim. So I wonder, 
how did you feel they they dealt with the kind of um, situations they were subjected mm, to? Mm, mm. I think in in that instance, seeing the father and son whose house had just been um, demolished that dawn, and um, this was a couple of hours later, still very fresh for them. The the son and his friends had been tear gassed by the Israeli um, forces and. I wanted to get the story, you know, so through um, an interpreter, Arabic interpreter, I, I managed to, to sit down with them and and to get the story. They had an air of weary resignation. This had happened to them before. This had happened to so many of their, their friends and neighbours. Um, they'd had this demolition order hanging over them for, for some time, sometimes years. Mm. Um, where they um, have been forced to build without planning permission because the Israelis won't give a um, uh, won't give that planning permission because they're, they're trying to get um, the Jewish majority within Greater Jerusalem um, and on their part the Palestinians they I didn't pick up anger I picked up weary resignation um, and powerlessness um, and did that make me angry? No, to be honest. It, it, but it did make me determined to tell their story in as yeah. powerful way as I could. So my other question, and it might be obvious what's coming, is I'm wondering what sense you got from Israelis involved in these kind of situations. I'm not talking about the Israelis who are out there peace protesting. Okay, mm -hmm. I mean the ones that are carrying out demolition orders, the ones, the settlers coming down from the hills. Mm. And what particularly influences this question for me actually is like I've, I've just recently been on a trauma workshop, okay, where we did these kind of role play games of uh, victim and victimizer. So a person could sense what it was like to be, to have someone shouting in their face, okay, mm. um, or to, um, insist that they change their mind about something, okay? Yeah. And on simple things like, uh, you would tell me your favorite color, and I would say, no, no, Phil, it's not blue, it's red. And you've got yeah. to say it's red. And I'd, yeah. I'd get, I'd try different ways to persuade you. Oh, come on now, yeah. it's red. Yeah. And then I get really angry, you know? Yeah. And in playing the victimizer, that was a unique thing for me, because I don't go around through life trying to be a bully, okay? <laughs> um, and I tried two different hats on with it, okay? I tried the hat of thinking, I'm, I'm a nasty bully now, and I'm gonna try and bully Phil out of his favorite color. And the other hat I tried on was, hey, I'm the good guy here. Like Phil's got this wrong idea in his head that his favorite color is red and I've got to help him by convincing him it's blue. And I found I could do it much more powerfully when I perceive myself as being good and virtuous and you've got this wrong headed idea and I'm here to help you and I might need to use strong arm, strong mm -hmm. arm tactics mm -hmm. to do that, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I wonder, I'm just gonna put all that on the table and leave you freely to answer. What did you feel from the Israelis? Because, you know, in a sense, we could sit here in, in this kitchen now and people, don't they get it? Don't they get that demolishing people's houses is wrong? That how can they go down and, and feel in any way like good human beings when they're smashing up people's farmland and crops and putting roadblocks in the way? Did you gain any insight into that? Um, to some extent, yes. Um, we didn't talk to the army or police when they were de demolishing houses. Um, we didn't talk to the settlers who tore up the 
um, olive tree saplings because that was the dead of night. Um, but we did talk to um, some Israelis ac across the spectrum nonetheless. Um, and we made a point of visiting an Israeli settlement in the West Bank, um, near, near Bethlehem actually, Ephraim. And um, speaking, we were invited inside um, the home of an Israeli settler, very um, comfortable home. And he spoke to us about his justification and for, 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 for what was going on. And he was, uh, he was not a, a religious um, Jew. He was a um, Jew who had been formerly a Wisconsin dairy farmer, had emigrated to Israel. Um, and he moved into the West Bank deliberately because he sees it part of their national um, project. Um, he would like to see um, a greater Israel, not for religious reasons, as some of the, the mm. Orthodox would, mm. but um, for, for, for nationalist reasons. Well, that, that um, is an interesting point about Israel. I think people think it's a very religious conflict, and that Zionism mm. has been very secular throughout its history, actually. Yes. And some religious Jews have strongly supported it. Some of the strongest opposition has come from yes. religious Jews to political yes. Zionism. So yes. it's an interesting yes. point. Yes, yeah, yeah. I mean, the the the, the, the Orthodox are, are very ambiguous. Some of them will will not recognise the modern 1948 creation of the day, yeah. of, of the state of Israel. You know, because they are waiting for the for, for the second coming. Or the first coming, as, yeah. as, as they would say, um, and uh, but this guy was 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 a Zionist. You know, he was a secular um, Jew who wanted to see um, uh, uh, um, um, a greater Israel, and from his point of view, a more secure Israel with with, with more secure um, borders. Um, and so we we listened to to this guy, and of course, you wanted to come in with at different points in his argument but yes but what about the other side you know and yes but and we we it was a good learning time for us because you know we really needed to just listen you know and and to bite our tongues to, to some extent because we there was value in listening to that um another example was i i went alone one afternoon um from east jerusalem where we were living to west jerusalem there's no border set up there you can cross freely these days and uh, i went to visit the yad vashem the israel's national museum stroke memorial to the holocaust and i wanted to go alone and to experience experience it more fully really and uh, I, um, I could see that, you know, the, the, the first gallery I went into was how the Jews over the centuries, long before Hitler, had been oppressed and persecuted by Christendom in particular. Did, you know, I didn't know there were riots in York in 1190 mm. against the Jews that England and Spain, you know, had, had um, expelled them all for, for centuries in, in medieval times. And the more recent 18th century pogroms in, in Poland and, and Russia mm. and a, a deeper understanding of, of, of what Jews had, had gone through. And you can understand then their overwhelming desire after the Second World War, particularly to, to have um, a safe, secure homeland. And that itself was a, um, uh, help me, help me get a, a broader picture of what's going on in this very intractable conflict. And I think that it sends Jewish people one of two ways. 
sometimes in that it can send one the title because it is it's a thousand year plus mm. trauma inflicted on the Jewish people and that can send people into okay we need the security of our own homeland no matter what mm. right that has got to be first principle mm. okay mm. and yeah Palestinian sorry for your luck you know yes. but that's it yes. or to the sense of a real moral sense of after what's been done to us we mm. must not do the, the worst yes. thing we could do would become yes. the oppressor yes. okay and Jewish people feel the most strongly about this mm. sometimes you know mm. Mm. yeah yeah, yeah, I think, you know, you, you, you would think perhaps dispassionately that the the Jews, after um, what they went through um, under fascism, under under Hitler, of, of all peoples would have an empathy mm. for the human rights of, of everybody. Um, but it, it, it hasn't worked out that way, not at least in modern Israeli politics. And it's almost as if um, uh, perhaps an, an, an analogy um, might be that you know it, it's um, it's often said that um, people who've undergone child abuse will grow up to be abusers mm. themselves, yeah. and I think on 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 one level that explains that you know the Israelis have have, have been through this terrible terrible situation in in in, in germany in, in europe where you know millions were were wiped out um but it's it's given them that um and i'm generalizing here but it's given them a, a hardness and an unwillingness to see where such abuse is happening to to other peoples mm. and i think it's a factor that we have it almost mythically in the west in our cinema and such that um, when people are set free from the confines of slavery or whatever, that they become really nice people and well-integrated in society. Mm, when people mm, who are set free mm, from slavery mm. are, are deeply traumatised. Yes, yes. Know, and act, yes. act accordingly. Yes. So it's not the kind of fairy tale ending when the situation is put right on a yes. political level. Yes. It can be on an individual level. You know, so, some oh, sure. people can, you know, and, you know, you think of Mandela, you know, locked up in prison and, and mm. um, oppressed for decades, but then coming out not with a desire to to oppress you know yeah. his oppressors but to think okay let's let's see what can be done here and on to take steps to, level. to reconciliation but on a political level too on a political level yeah. but at the same time south africa has a lot of problems now yes. from this and it's actually um there's a line near the end of victor frankl's book uh, man's search for meaning when victor frankl was in the concentration camp and he, he um jewish and him and a friend are walking across the field and his friend is trampling on the crops. I think it must be in Germany. And Victor Frankl says to him, what are you doing? You know, and he says, well, it doesn't matter compared to what we've been through. And he says, Victor Frankl probably is, no, you don't, you see, it matters all the more. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, they can yeah. send you in, yeah. in those directions. Yeah, yeah. So um, coming back then to back on the Isle of Man, and it's a requirement of the program that you do presentations. Yes, um, very much so. And, yeah. and the Quakers see that as just as important. And, you, you know, we are contractually obliged to do 10 public speaking talks. You, you, you heard one of them, you know, when, when we get back. Yes. Um, so this is two times that you've returned to the Isle of Man and tried to report on foreign parts. OK, you were talking about Africa before. 
And there you encounter perhaps a sense of apathy. I don't know, I'm sure there are people who are very interested, but there's a sense of trying to get people interested. With the Middle East, maybe that's there too, but I'm going to guess what what's different to Africa is there are people who are anything but apathetic and maybe mm -hmm. not in a healthy way where you encounter um, well I would I would definitely think you're going to encounter very pro-Zionist positions particularly coming from the, the the church who would be very critical I don't know if you found very strongly pro-Palestinian positions difficult to deal with also um, I'm also thinking that you put on a public talk and you probably have these people in the same room, right? And I, I saw your talk a couple of times and I do recall there being some conflict between the audience <laughs> on both occasions. I think mm. I was involved in it one time, but I might discredit. <laughs> and we all had a chat in the car park afterwards mm. and it was, mm. it was quite reconciliatory. But on both occasions, I remember people having very strong feelings mm. and a very different story, a very different narrative about mm. what happened there, mm. you know? Mm. Um, so... Go on, so how, how, how did you cope with that? Yes, I mean, the, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict has been um, such a slow burner for, um, for, for, for 50 years. I'm old enough to remember the, the, the Six-Day War, and as you say, it goes back beyond that. Um, so a lot of people have um, quite polarised sometimes um, attitudes to, to it. Um, and... Uh, based on their own background and experience, of course, and you know we, we are we are trained in a way to, to 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 listen to those and to respect them. And every time we 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 do a talk, it's important to put questions, put time aside, more time in a way than I can do a half hour presentation, but but more time aside to to get the views and to have a discussion afterwards. And that that's that's always very important. So, yes, we, you know I. I I addressed different view and um, different groups when I came back. Um, certainly, church and, and, and Christian groups are, um, are across uh, um, a broad spectrum. Um, but also, I went to um, Douglas Mosque. Um, I I went to other secular groups, the, the Round Table, golf clubs, and uh, anyone who would who who would have me. Um, so it was always um, uh, important and interesting to me to, to, to hear what um, what what uh, the, the views of others um, yeah and and there were sometimes quite um, uh, polarized views com coming forward um, not least with, with, within the church as you say you know there's um, there's uh, there are many um, uh, People, not just Jewish, but also Christians, who who believe that the uh, restoration of the the state of Israel in 1948 was something that was foretold as as prophecy and in in the Book of Revelation, and you know they, they can point to um, the Book of um, Leviticus mm. where God gives Israel all the land between the Nile and the Euphrates, and you know a, a, a literal reading yeah. of, of these um, is, is, um, will, will be problematic. An interesting <laughs> point too, that um, Zionism is probably predominantly a Christian movement now in terms of numbers, I would guess. You know, 30 million Americans. Possibly, yeah. Whether well, they Christian call themselves Zionists, I don't know, but, but possibly. And, and, you know, the, the, um, the, the church in the States is particularly hmm. um, in, influential um, on the, um, the, the powers that be out there now. Um, perhaps even more so than the the, the Jewish community within the states, um, and um, so that that was. But it, it was good to hear those views, and um, uh, or, or like you know you you 
all I can do is, is hear and say I understand, but say, well, that's, that's not my interpretation no. of, 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 of those passages. Um, and to, um, to, you know, to, to, to put my view on the record as well. Um, but again, you know, what, like, as when you're out there, there's, um, it, it's counterproductive to, to, show, um, to show anger during such discussions. You, you, you have to listen to each other. And, you know, it's no good trying to go out there and, and be, be an example of, um, of, of peaceful coexistence when you come back and you have a row with someone mm. in, in a church mm. hall. You know, and, and one, of the great, one of the greatest challenges out there was not, not the, the work we were doing, I've been described as a, as a day-to-day basis, but also you had five of us, ecumenical companies, strangers to each other, um, living within a house together. So with five of us in East Jerusalem, aged from 23 to 73, all from different nationalities, we had to get on. You know, no one was appointed leader. Mm. There was no manager to supervise us. We had to get on. We had to, to work out rotors. We had to divide up the um, who, who would be doing what each week, each day. We had to decide who was going to, um, to, to buy the groceries, who was going to do cooking, who was going to wash up. And you know, in, in, in a way, for some people, that's, that's the greatest challenge of all. But it's valid because unless we can actually rub along together and show give and take in a purely domestic setting, what hope is there that we can be witnesses in an international one? That's a powerful point. Good, good point to finish on, Could maybe. Be. Yeah, just. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for listening, everyone. Please do subscribe for more interviews like this, and I always welcome feedback on any of the platforms. Thank you.